from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming on on today's show, Solar Tattoo Spots. In addition, we'll be joined by Josh Benogel talking about his new book, Flawless. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm actually kind of drowsy for some reason. You know, if of all the moods that you have, Frank, I think drowsy is my most favorite. Really? Yes, I don't know why. Because there's grumpy, there's uh-huh. there's happy, uh-huh. and then drowsy, you know? Yeah, it's very peaceful, actually. <laughs> Maybe you need a little bit of towering to get you right up and going. <laughs> so anyways, have you been branded by science? How about you? Have you, have you received the brand of approval? Uh, no, not yet, but apparently some scientists have taken upon themselves to do it with some tattoo action. Tattoo action, you say? Yes. And how do they do that? Putting on scientific structures onto their bodies, uh, for example, DNA molecules, ATP, genetic codes, etc. <laughs> well, you know, if, if you're going to put anything on your body, I think a scientific symbol is the way to go. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, in fact, the entire periodic table for someone. My goodness. All right. Well, hopefully it'll help you get a date. In fact, there's one person who uh, has etched his wife's initial in DNA code of EEE for his tattoo. So anyways, there's, there's actually uh, on a website at scienceblogs.com backslash loom. And it's written by a science writer named Carl Zimmer. And up to now, he has already over 100 comments on this topic. So it looks like there is a pretty sizable population of uh, scientists out there with tattoos of technical nature. <laughs> there you go. I mean, if you could get a tattoo, what would it be? Uh, Mama didn't love me? <laughs> I've met your mother. I'm sure she loves you. <laughs> I'm sure she does, too. <laughs> All right. If people want to find out more about this? Go to uh, scienceblogs.com backslash loom, or you can email blog at carlzimmer, that's with a Z, Z-I-M-M-E-E-R, dot com. Well, you know what? Those tattoos are hot. They are? They're the coolest things I've ever seen. Nothing else in the universe is harder than that, huh? Well, obviously, we have to look at our own sun. Well, so far, it's been giving us pretty good weather. <laughs> uh, this is, does not actually have to do directly with global warming, but rather the sunspots that the sun produces. Oh, okay. Right. And as I'm sure you know, that actually causes interference with a lot of electrical devices. Right. So researchers have actually been trying to predict what's going to happen with the next solar cycle when it's predicted to peak uh-huh. in uh, 2012. This is like there's no scientific consensus. There's actually a sizable number of scientists who feel it's going to be very calm, others who feel it's going to be kind of violent. Yeah, but uh, apparently a group of researchers has shown that using a new model that the next solar peak may not be quite as dramatic or as robust as some previous models have predicted. Mm -hmm. And this was research that was done by uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. On average, it looks like the number of sunspots is actually going to be much smaller than uh, predicted. And it may not be quite as dramatic as they previously thought. Okay. It might be a good thing. Your handy iPods will still be functioning. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Okay, so this was uh, published in a recent edition of Science Now. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's Dr. Josh Benogel talking about his new book, Flawless. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, plastic surgery continues to be a major elective procedure, but one that often has no medically necessary purpose, often causing an ethical dilemma for doctors performing these procedures. This is one of the issues forming the backdrop for the new novel Flawless. The author, Dr. Joshua Spagnogel, is a recent graduate of Stanford Medical School, whose previous work, Isolation Ward, was a San Francisco Chronicle bestseller. He joins us today to discuss this most recent work. Uh, Dr. Spagnogel, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you for having me, Josh. Right. I'm, I'm curious, actually. So what actually inspired you to uh, write this particular novel? I found the issue of enhancement in general pretty fascinating both ethically and just how it plays out in everyday life. I mean, on one end of the spectrum of enhancement, we have sending your kid to a private school, which could be thought of as a flavor of enhancement. That's along the lines with Kaplan, MCAT preps, SAT preps. At the other end of the spectrum, sort of the extreme of enhancement, we have medical and surgical enhancement. Uh, cosmetic surgery and cosmetic medicine really shine a bright light on the whole issue of enhancement. And beyond that, just the idea of altering ourselves physically, what we think of as these attributes that are inherent to us, was pretty fascinating to me and also a little creepy. Treating the body as plastic always has kind of a uh, sort of sideshow, creep show aspect for me. Well, isn't that just sort of part of the great American tradition of being able to constantly reinvent yourself? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think one thing that's, that's fascinating about cosmetic medicine in general is that there's been an appropriation of self-improvement language from psychology in the 60s, you know, of being able to reinvent yourself, of being able to improve yourself, so that there's this constant iterations of not just reinventing yourself, but improving, improving, improving. I'm going to be less depressed, more happy this year. I'm going to have a better face, better nose this year. So I think it falls within, a, as, you, as you suggest, a long tradition of, of reinvention and self-improvement in America. Better living through medicine, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We hope, right? Right, right. So how does this pose an ethical dilemma for the doctors who are requested to perform these procedures then? You know, it's a, it's a very alive debate within medicine in general and in the um, specialties which tend to provide these procedures. 
I think in your introduction, you uh, referred to something being medically necessary. Well, you know, a lot of these things aren't medically necessary. And here I want to draw a bright line between reconstructive surgery, say after a mastectomy or after a disfiguring accident, and enhancement surgery. You know, on one side of the debate are folks who think that this kind of intervention and these procedures are almost by definition malpractice, and you're violating one of the core tenets of the Hippocratic Oath, which is to first do no harm. The pushback on the other side is those performing these aesthetic procedures are pointing to the Hippocratic Oath and saying, you know, well, the Hippocratic Oath also says perform no abortions and don't have conjugal relations with your slaves. So they would say that certain aspects of the Hippocratic Oath are just obsolete. I think they would also say that, look, these people are adults in general, you know, making this decision. And who better to provide these interventions than doctors? God forbid everything get pushed into the back alleys to people who aren't trained in the anatomy and can't do this stuff safely. Because the appetite right now is big enough and huge enough that, you know, I'm convinced that if all of a sudden all trained physicians were to stop doing these cosmetic procedures, they would uh, crop up and be performed by other professionals or quasi-professionals. How much of an issue do you think it really is for uh, the doctors who perform this procedure? Uh, Do they really think about the ethical implications of the work they're doing? Um, Again, that runs the gamut. You know, there are a lot of dermatologists and plastic surgeons and otolaryngologists who do absolutely no cosmetic medicine whatsoever. Dermatology, which is the field I'm going to receive my training in, I would say most of the people do a bit of cosmetic medicine and do the majority of what we call medical dermatology. And then there are folks who do exclusively aesthetic procedures and aesthetic surgery. For some people, it's a conundrum. For other people, it's not. For some people, you know, it's just, it's a market. There's a really voracious market out there, and I think there are some doctors out there basically just punt all the moral questions and say, give the people what they want. Do you feel as if you're particularly sensitive to this issue? Because I understand you worked for a time as a researcher at the Center for Bioethics at UPenn. Yeah, I, I, recall, I recall reading a um, paper that was submitted for a journal. So, you know, it was stripped of everybody's name, and it, this was just part of the peer review process. And what started me thinking about these issues was this paper that was coming out and saying, in no unclear terms, that cosmetic surgery was malpractice and was not just amoral, but rather immoral. Um, which I thought was a pretty stiff statement. That got me thinking whether this was right and whether it was wrong and just seeing the whole gray area for um, cosmetic medicine. Because I think we we can't, or at least I certainly can't, castigate everybody who performs any cosmetic procedure or receives a cosmetic procedure, nor can I say that it's all okay and we should just give everybody what they want. I also think, you know, my time working in medical ethics, I worked with a bioethicist called uh, Glenn McGee, who was very interested in enhancement, and enhancement on the biological side, so enhancement from drugs and procedures, et cetera. He really cast enhancement on the full scale, like I said before, including private schools, SAT prep courses. And if you think about enhancement with capital E, I think it changes the biological or medical debate about enhancement just a little bit. Why have you chosen novels, per se, to actually uh, try and express some of these views? Because I think my first love is narrative and story and character. And it's just a lot more fun for me to write about these ideas and also what I hope is you know, a good story that's going to keep someone turning the pages and is going to involve someone in the character. 
though these themes do find expression in the book, the book is primarily meant to entertain people, to take people to a different place, and if possible to you know, show them the different sides of certain ethical debates. I'm curious about the uh, protagonist in your book, Dr. Nathaniel McCormick. Was he based on anybody in particular? No. <laughs> and I get, the, I get the question all the time, Charles, whether you know, I'm Dr. McCormick, and I'm certainly not <laughs> Dr. McCormick. He's a little bit He's a lot more prickly and difficult to get along with than I think I am. <laughs> you know, nobody's, nobody's told me otherwise yet. I, I, I suppose I'll, to be, I'll try to be a little more self-aware. But he's, he's a compilation uh, of people I know, both in medicine and out of medicine. And w- one thing that interested me about him, he's, he, in some ways he's a prototypical angry young man. And to place this angry young man in a social milieu that is medicine that really doesn't allow for a lot of personality variation. And, you know, of course, you know, everybody can have their own personalities, but there's a, there are strict codes of conduct and behavior, and it's a very hierarchical system. So to put someone in that chafes at the hierarchy I thought was quite interesting. You know, he's, a, uh, he's a bee in the bonnet of certain aspects of the medical system, that's for sure. <laughs> Do you find it challenging actually trying to write medical issues for a lay audience? It, it, it is one of the challenges for novelists who truck in technology or medicine. I think that I was helped by starting the first book when I had just finished my first year. So I was, you know, I had a pretty rudimentary understanding of medicine. So I kind of had to break everything down. And it wasn't too difficult for me to look at the issues and look at the medicine, look at the science through a layperson's eyes. It's also one of the things that I wanted to do. Like I very consciously set out to educate as much as I could without burdening the story. Because as I said before, the story and the characters are my first priority. Second to that are the themes and uh, the medicine and sciences as it's presented. Do you have any particular influences that have influenced your writing? Yeah, um, definitely Michael Crichton. I think everybody who works in uh, this genre owes a ton to Michael Crichton, and especially the way he presents science. I think he does it very well and shows that you, you can actually teach people and educate people through novels. I owe a lot in the sensibility of the books to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. I wanted to bring a sort of noir sensibility to the novels and especially to the protagonist, Nate McCormick. A lot of people are probably wondering how someone who's in the medical profession can find the time, in fact, to write these novels. I, I have ruined a couple relationships. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, I've, done a, I've done a good job of that. Um, I was also fortunate, at least for the second book, that Stanford was very flexible with my schedule. So I was able to take a year in and, in and out of the hospital to complete the second book. But the first book was written without taking any time off, and it involved a lot of lost weekends and a lot of uh, sacrifices in terms of personal relationships. And it just means getting up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday and into the library and working before class and after class and between experiments. You know, when I was working in the lab, I was able to get a little bit of work done, but not not too many ball games <laughs> during medical school. And yet I understand that uh, there's a third book in the work. There, there, is a, there is a third book in the works. As we were chatting about Charles before going on the air, it was um, the, the first two months of my, of my residency have, have been tough. 
So <laughs> I think I think about I think about uh, the next book and do about three minutes of research, and then I'm I'm asleep and passed out on the desk. Well, sometimes the best ideas come out when you're passed out. There, I'll, I'll let you know when those pass. <laughs> Right now, it's just it's a very comforting long blackness. Um, whether that blackness lasts for a long ten minutes or an hour or so. Okay. Okay, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious if uh, maybe you just have some last words for uh, people who are interested in, in your work. Uh, maybe where they can go or anything else that you'd like to add. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, people can go to the website, which is just joshuaspinogle.com. It wasn't too hard for me to get that URL. <laughs> a lot of Joshua Spinogles out there. And that would probably, yeah, that would be the best the best place to go for more information. And if anyone is interested in the first book, it's called Isolation Ward and chronicles the action of the protagonist, Nate McCormick, a year before this current book. All right. Well, I definitely uh, hope everyone will take a look at your website and, of course, your new book, which is Flawless. Dr. Spinogle, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much, Charles. It was great to talk to you. Okay. All right. You were just listening to Dr. Josh Spinogle talking about his new book, Flawless. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. player game. It's the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, makeover or leave them as is. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they're in need of plastic surgery or maybe they're okay as they are. Uh, Dr. Spinogle, are you ready to play a game? I think so. All right, here we go. Person number one, makeover or leave them as is, Donald Trump. You know, the, the, the Donald is such an icon. If you know, if we gave him a, new, a nose job, if we gave him breast implants, he just wouldn't be the Donald anymore. <laughs> Maybe he could go for some hairstyling, but that's beyond my expertise. So I'd say let's leave the Donald as he is. I think he's already gone from hairstyling, from what I can tell. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's true. Okay, number number two is King of Pop, Michael Jackson. When when you've already spent years in the operating room, getting cosmetic procedures done. It's probably the most comfortable place for you. So I'd say let, let MJ relax a little bit. And um, sure, let him get something else done. Maybe we could add an extra appendage. I don't know where to go from here, frankly, um, or where he could go from, from where he is, but I, I think he could, get it. he could get a little more done. Okay. <laughs> I, I think he certainly got permanent chair at the uh, doctor's office there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, number three is Jerry Springer. Yeah, sure. Let's just uh, let's just make him totally over. <laughs> I think I think make uh, make him over so much that he's to become Jerry Springer and becomes a different individual. Uh, I'm show- not sure. That, I'm not sure of the positive force that Jerry Springer has in American culture right now. <laughs> um, I guess I won't be going on any Jerry Springer show anytime soon. That might, that might actually be a good thing. I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it. Okay, number four is home run slugger Barry Bonds. I, I think he's already perhaps. You know, the jury's still out, but yeah. he might have done a good job of making himself over. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if Barry needs any anything else done. It sounds like he has, you know, we're <laughs> in the Bay Area here, and uh, he might have had enough done. I think he's had enough makeover. <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, George Bush. For fear of anything um, untoward happening to me um, <laughs> in, in the darkest night, I'm going to say, George Bush, let's just keep the President the way he is. And we'll count down the days. <laughs> Enough said. All right. Well, I don't think you'll be having to worry about Homeland Security then. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Spinogo, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing our game. Thanks so much, Charles. Well, it was a real pleasure. Well, thank you. And, and of course, your new book is uh, Flawless. I hope everyone goes and checks that out. Thank you again. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Es Brigadoon, es bloody Brigadoon, how do you destroy matter, antimatter, particles collide, releasing energy, and that is all your ghoul abilities, Highlander. And Forrest here with this week's question of the week. Well, down here in the pristine south, we got some chemical companies, and once in a while, they leak a little bit into the Mississippi. Sometimes the fishes die, but... Oh well, it's part of progress. If you know or think you know what causes it, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but that crawfish, it'll still be good. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more for the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.